welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. So we counted to three, we jumped off, feet first, and I remember falling, and I can hear the velocity, you know, when you're, you know, it was a far, it was a long drop, looking at the water, and then I hit the water. I knew something was drastically wrong. And it's hard to sort of explain it other than the feeling of as if I would have got hit by a stun gun or something like that. You know, it was a far drop. The water was cold. At first, I thought maybe, you know, I had whiplash or something. But all I could tell was it was as if I had been hit by a stun gun and I was totally, completely frozen. I just couldn't move anything. Um, I didn't feel anything. There was no pain. There was no, didn't feel like anything had hit me. But I was in the water and I couldn't move and I was utterly frozen. And I remember just being in complete confusion but I, I couldn't move. And I was just floating in, in between the water and, and, and the ground. I always kind of mentioned that it felt like I was an astronaut kind of drifting somewhere in space. That's a pretty dramatic story, isn't it? But would you believe it's not the most dramatic thing about the crucible experience of our guest today? Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. Today's guest is Chris Liu, and what he just described was a devastating recreational diving accident that left him a quadriplegic, and in an instant tragedy that almost killed him. But as you'll hear in his conversation with Warwick, Chris refused to let paralysis be the end of his story. After two years of arduous rehab, complicated by some setbacks with his insurance coverage, he battled back not only to regain movement and mobility, but to found a nonprofit rehab center where he lives his life of significance, helping others move beyond their physical and emotional crucibles. Well, Chris, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. You have just an amazing story and how you've come back from what, I mean, it's hard to believe what you have achieved is probably not the right word, but what you've uh, overcome. It, it is almost literally unbelievable. I'm sure a lot of people said what you did is maybe not impossible, but close. So obviously the turning point in your life was that spinal cord injury, but Tell me a bit about Chris Liu and growing up and career and what was life like before age 20, 28? What, what was the before story, so to speak? Well, well, thanks for having me, Warwick. It's, it's really good to, to talk to you and, and Gary, good to see you both. And I appreciate you thinking of me and in, in, in your podcast and kind of the, the premise of your podcast definitely relates to my life. I, I know it relates to a lot of other people as well, struggles we go through. Um, so I appreciate you um, having me on. Yeah, obviously my life changed a lot, as you heard in the introduction. So, uh, but but early on, I think um, if wondering about you know pre-injury and, and pre pre-life changing moment, I I was hurt at age 28. But before then, I think I, I was always a very active individual. I was kind of a an adrenaline junkie a little bit. <laughs> and you hear a little bit how I got paralyzed, and um, you'll probably uh, recognize that. Um, but I grew up in Indianapolis uh, in a you know uh, a very fortunate upper middle class family. I my family is amazing. They were a huge part of my recovery. They're a huge part of of um, the clinic I'm in now. I, I I grew up 
very fortunate um, having that nuclear family. And I, I always had a sense of adventure. I was always active. I was I was always the guy that was um, you couldn't keep me you couldn't keep me me still getting into activities here and there and always wanting to do more. And I think that sort of led me to my first career path, which was in television and news. You know, I, I was drawn to being a reporter because think about what a reporter does. They're out and about, they're doing stories, they're in the community, no no day is different. Uh, I, I really I really found that to be a, a big part of you know, who, who I was as a person early on. Um, never wanting to sit still, always wanting to kind of get out, get out there and, and do things. So as you're growing up with the things you like to do with your mom and dad, I mean, sports, you're a very active person, were there things that you just loved, loved doing? Um, I was, yeah, I had two, two kind of passions when I was younger. One of them was water skiing and wakeboarding. Huh. I was, I did that since about the age of five or six. Um, like I was on a pair of skis and um, I was on the Indiana University Water Ski Club and actually taught water skiing and wakeboarding in college in, in the Berkshire, Massachusetts mountains. Oh, wow. Um, and the other one was playing the drums. I was playing the, I played the drums since I was about age five or six too. My parents got me involved in activities because I was so restless all the time. <laughs> and uh, those are some of the things that, um, yeah, I definitely had a passion for, for growing up. I can imagine. Don't let Chris sit still, you know, <laughs> keep him busy. Pretty much. <laughs> Which makes sense. And um, so reporting now, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you love being on the go, but how did you pick that? And was that in Indianapolis or where did you start out with uh, kind of newspaper TV reporting? So I, I uh, majored in telecommunications and business at Indiana University. I really, I really liked, I really enjoyed filmmaking part of it as well. So that was sort of part of the whole thing that drew me into journalism. Um, and, but also just the storytelling part, you know, I always had a, I always sort of liked the a little bit of the adrenaline. I think of even just public speaking and being live on air. You know, you always is always nervous, but then afterward you liked it. So maybe that was part of it that drew me to it as well. But a lot of it was just you know, I didn't I didn't see myself uh, having you know an office job or um, at that age you know in my early twenties, and I wanted to just do something that had to do with being active. That's great. And, so and that was local, wasn't? That's kind of how I how I gravitated toward that. And then I actually I went to graduate school for journalism after after my undergraduate oh, wow. degree but great there there, there are definitely times between there that i was sort of bouncing around not knowing what i was going to do exactly with life it wasn't like i was like okay as soon as i graduate i'm going to i'm going to go into to this profession but um i so to answer, i guess to answer your question i i started in indiana i also worked at some news stations in florida and then back to indiana okay um shortly this is the first time i just have to note okay. this for the record this is this is the first time on Beyond the Crucible that we have three people with journalism backgrounds all sharing the sharing the microphones. That's true. We've got Chris, a former television journalist, Gary, the co-host, a former newspaper journalist, and Warwick, a former magnet who owned a company that owned both print and electronic journalism outlets. So yeah. look at us. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So I never actually was a reporter, but yeah, <laughs> on, a, on the different side. So so talk about that kind of fateful day as I was understanding. It was Southern Indiana. You were kayaking. It was just a probably beautiful warm day. You were, you were out as you love doing in nature and water. I guess you weren't quite um, 
water skiing, but, you know, you were kayaking and you must have thought, boy, this is, life is just awesome. You're with some buddies. So take us through that day because it started out probably as just a, a wonderful, warm, you know, warm day. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a, about a 95 degree, hot, humid Midwestern day. And I was with two of my best friends and we were kayaking. Um, and it's one of those things where a typical summer Sunday, you're having fun with your friends. And it was, it was, I was, I was at the age where, you know, at age 28, you're, you have your life ahead of you at that point, you know, you don't really realize it at the time. I mean, I'm, I'm 39 now. So I'm, uh, there's been 11 years that have passed since then. I've learned a whole lot, but that day, you know, I look, I, I look back that day often and you just, no idea what's in store and life in general. You know, you think you think you have things figured out even when you're young at that age, um, you know, kind of going into the professional world. But um, obviously I had no idea what was in store for me uh, later that afternoon. So we're kayaking on this river and we approach this bridge that's over the, 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 the river. It's an abandoned bridge, it's a truss bridge. And there were some people jumping off of the bridge into the water maybe about 20 feet or so into the water, deep water, not overly dangerous. And um, it was with my friends and we were like, oh yeah, we're jumping off that bridge too. That's, that's pretty fun. <laughs> Adrenaline junkies after all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it was, it was hot. It was, it was fun. I mean, it wasn't anything more dangerous than maybe jumping off a high dive. It wasn't ultimately that dangerous. Yeah. Um, but then jumped off a couple of times, but then there was this higher truss, one of these big vertical beams that went way up higher about an extra 30 feet and then i decided to climb up that as well so i kind of scaled up this vertical beam uh, up to the very top beam um probably about you know 50 60 feet above the water and you know i always tell people it felt like one of those construction pictures you see of new york city with the people in the hard hats on mm -hmm. you know that, that's that's what it felt like on this little on this beam up, over the treetops and i'm about to jump off and i hear this voice from down below um, someone telling me to wait. And I was a stranger. I didn't know who he was. Um, but I kind of looked down and said, okay, come on up. You want to jump with me? I'm, I'm always good having a partner. Um, so he, I waited for him to climb up and we're both sitting there like two birds on a little purse on a wire. And I can very, I can remember the conversation pretty clearly. I had been up there for a while and I wanted to get off that beam. And he was like, he was like, he, he said to me, he said, wow, look, you know, you can see everything up here. And I remember cutting him off mid-sentence and I was like, yeah, that's, that's great. I'm going to jump in three seconds. So are you ready? And he said, he said, yep. So we counted to three and we jumped off feet first. And I remember falling and I can hear the velocity, you know, when you're, you know, it was a far, it was a long drop looking at the water. And then I hit the water. I knew something was drastically wrong. And it's hard to sort of explain it other than the feeling of as if I would have got hit by a stun gun or something like that. You know, it was a far drop. The water was cold at first. I thought maybe, you know, um, you know, I had whiplash or something. But all I could tell was it was as if I had been hit by a stun gun and I was totally, completely frozen. I just couldn't move anything. Um, I didn't feel anything. There was no pain. There was no... I didn't, it didn't, didn't feel like anything had hit me, but I was in the water and I couldn't move and I was utterly frozen. And I remember just being in complete confusion, but I, I couldn't move and I was just floating 
in, in between the water and, and, and the ground. I always kind of mentioned that it felt like I was an astronaut kind of drifting somewhere in space, but I was frozen. I couldn't move. After a few moments, I didn't think about drowning at that moment, but it was pretty soon after that where that started being a very concern of mine. Uh, and after what felt like five minutes, it was probably only about maybe 10 or 15 seconds, I kind of felt this strange feeling on my back. And that's when I realized that, okay, I, at least I was on the surface, but I was still head down, face down in the water. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't move. What happened was, it turned out the gentleman that jumped with me, we jumped at the same time, we fell at about the same rate. He ended up coming in right on top of me as we struck the water simultaneously and just snapped my neck uh, at this at this fourth cervical level. Um, so, you know, just like like that, I was totally paralyzed from the neck down. So uh, and this is this wasn't one of your buddies, it was just some some other some other guy that was there, right? Right. Yes. He was he was he was another person that was kind of watching us jump and Yeah. So so you didn't and so as you're up there, like 50 foot up, and you're about to go, were you thinking that you were going to jump together or, you know, hey, let's do it together? Yeah. Or you, you didn't think about, oh, gee, what could happen? You think you're just going to both no. jump in the water. It's just not, you know, one, two, three, let's go. It just exactly. doesn't occur yeah. to you that that, one, could, two, three, that that could even happen. And it probably didn't seem that different. I've seen, you know, like when couples, when romantic couples dive off of cliffs, right? They hold hands and they jump at the same time. So I would think while you guys probably weren't holding hands, the fact that you jumped together at the same time didn't seem that unordinary, right? Right. Yeah, it didn't at all. You know, I mean, no, I mean, we, we weren't holding hands, but we were very close to one another because the way up to that top truss was just this one vertical beam. And once you're up on that beam, it's not like we were, walking around, you know, it's like, <laughs> it was so high. Um, and I didn't think about it. But in, in hindsight, you know, I really beat myself up over it. Because I was like, you know, we were so close to each other when we jumped. Um, you know, we didn't even think about it. And that's what did it. We were just so close to each other. So in that moment, when obviously you're face down, you can't move, and you you're not probably thinking, oh, gosh, I must be paralyzed. You're just confused, right? It's like, I don't know what's happening. And so talk us through those first, you know, first few moments, first maybe hour or two. I mean, what um, what was going through your head? Uh, the worst. Um, I, I actually did sort of, well, when I, was, when I was face down in the water, I knew obviously something was wrong. I was very, very close to drowning. Um, it took, because I was kind of face down drifting a little bit. And um, I remember, you know, when you get to that point, if you've ever tried holding your breath underwater, you get to see how long you can do it. You get to that point where, you know, you know, an alarm's going off in your head. I, I was definitely at that point. But at the last second, I started feeling someone tug my body and flip me over. That, the second that happened, I just screamed out. I was like, I'm awake, I'm awake, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm conscious, because I figured a lot of people might have thought I was unconscious. It was the guy that lumped, jumped on me. You know, he eventually got to me. And, and flipped me over and, and dragged me to shore. Uh, as soon as I was on the shore, a lot of the commotion had stopped. But still, you know, I it's a very surreal feeling being paralyzed. You know, it, it's very surreal because just thinking, okay, you know, this maybe this is going to wear off. Maybe there's a little bit of whiplash. 
you know, in the span of a couple minutes, you go from this carefree summer Sunday to constantly all of a sudden thinking that, you know, you see the, the no diving signs on swimming pools and you hear the stories of people like Christopher Reeve, the, who's mm-hmm. famous for, um, you know, he really is one of the person people in the nineties that put spinal cord injuries on the map. And all those things ran through my head too. I think even in that early, early moments on that beach, I just said, okay, you know, just get up, just move. You can do this. Just, just move. And when you can't, you're feeling like you're stuck in concrete, I started to realize that, okay, as, as, as the minutes kind of went on that, you know, this had been, this was serious <laughs> and I had been a lifeguard. Mm. So I had done backboarding drills and I, I kind of, you know, some of those things are always in the back of your mind. Like, okay, wow. You know, do I have a spinal cord injury? Is this, is this, is this happening? So all those thoughts were in your mind that, you, know, you, they were. you knew, obviously, this was serious. And so, I mean, I, I suppose it's inevitable, You're, the sense of fear, panic. I mean, were all those pain, I mean, all those thoughts, physical and emotional, all running through your mind in those first minutes and hours? All of it. Yeah. They, uh, a helicopter was called in, and they actually airlifted me to a hospital in Indianapolis, which was about you know half an hour away. And I think when it really hit me, was um, when I, the next day when I when I'd woken up out of surgery, you know, because I I had gone I had gone under they they had reconstructed my neck, but the next you know the next morning when I when I woke up from surgery it's the first time that I had fallen asleep and really you know woken back up to the reality, and I was on a ventilator I had this tube down my throat that was breathing for me because my lungs were partially paralyzed, and I, I remember I can remember waking up. And the whole time I was totally conscious, even when the moment I was injured, like I'd never, nothing happened mm-hmm. to my brain. I was never knocked unconscious. I was thinking and talking the way I am now, but that's when it really hit me. You know, was this the rest of my life? I, it's really the emotions that run through your mind, you know, not, not only not moving again. So many people think about, oh yeah, I'll never walk again. But once you're introduced to what it's like being a quadriplegic, where you need people to range your limbs, you need to so you don't get bed sores, you need someone to cath you and you to have no bowel and bladder function and you are completely 100% dependent on everything. And I get introduced to that part of the world in those early days and weeks in the ICU and in the hospital and um, you think your life's over. I, I At the age of 28, I thought my life was over and particularly as you know, family and friends would become visiting and it was very much felt like I was living through my own wake. It was hard, obviously. It goes without saying. I mean, what you're saying is obviously the pain is one thing, but for somebody that was so active, the sense of the active Chris Lou is no more. You know, the kayaking, the wakeboarding, the even newspaper reporting. I mean, it's obviously possible, you know, in this day and age, but. You know, you're thinking, gosh, you know, I think of, I'm sure you're familiar, Johnny Erickson Tata, who was, you know, paralyzed in a diving accident in the late 60s, I don't know, 16, 17. And she's a person of faith and has had a radio show since, uh, I don't know if it's 50 plus years that she's been a quadriplegic and she was a horse rider and her life was permanently changed. And yeah, I mean, I've read a book, listen to a story, it takes hours to get out of bed and hours to get ready for bed. And there's people helping her a whole life. And I mean, obviously, fortunately, your trajectory changed a bit, but th- that, that's feeling of helplessness. And 
when people people mean well and gee, Chris, how can I help you? What can I do for you? That's very kind of them. They're probably feeling I don't want people to have to help me. I want to do this myself. Thank you for offering, but you know all that niceness and kindness and helping you. It probably some weird way was a bit depressing. Does that make any kind of sense? You know, it does. Suddenly, you need people to feed you, and you need people to. You know, you can't even be upright in bed without your blood pressure dropping. All these little things happen when you're a quadriplegic. And you, yeah, helplessness is a very big, yeah, you, you I, I felt completely helpless. Not not only physically, but also just where my life was going to be going from that, that point on. You know, um, you know, depending on the age of some of your listeners, if, if, if they're in the older generation, you think back to when they were age 28 and maybe in the beginning of having a family and all that and and the beginning of a career and having a life in front of you and all of a sudden having it snuffed out. Or if you're a younger person now, um, think about right now, you think you have a problem now and you're complaining about something. Well, all of that could change in the next 10 minutes. And that's something that, you know, when all those thoughts are sort of flooding your mind early on, um, I, like I mentioned before, I I, I 100% thought that my life was over. Yeah, it's just hard to imagine how could I have a life as a quadriplegic? I mean, it's not easy. It's possible. But at that moment, it must have felt like, as you say, life is over. So there's the whole, well, physically, what do I do? And we'll get into your journey here uh, very shortly, because that's fascinating. But there's also, you know, the recrimination side. Now, some, you know, it's easy objectively to look to say, hey, look, you know, Two young guys, they jump off, things happen. If it's not you, it's easy to be objective and say, look, yeah, maybe it wasn't the smartest thing to be up 50 foot, but look, you know, plenty of people do that. The water was deep. It wasn't that like crazy, you know? So if you're not you, you can look at it objectively. But did you look back and get angry at yourself, angry at this person you didn't know that jumped at the same time? And were there some self-recrimination or anger at others? Was that any part of the whole mix of emotions in there? I was very mad at myself. I was very mad at myself. Um, I Nothing toward the other the other person. In fact, he's the one that saved my life hmm. Um, hmm. because I almost drowned. I, I was, I, I don't mean this in any sort of exaggeration. I was maybe within a few seconds of drowning. Hmm. That's how long that I was face down floating. Yeah, I, I just beat up myself for, like I said earlier, just being so close close to each other. Like I, I didn't, I was like, why did I not think of that? You know? Yeah. There's a particularly a lot in a lot of those, those, those early days in the hospital. Um, the, the nights were always the worst early on when I had moved to the hospital, when I had moved to the rehabilitation hospital and even into the nursing home. Um, my friends and family were around me all the time, but a lot of times at night, um, when I was there by myself and I could do nothing but stare up at the ceiling and just trying to comprehend what had happened as the weeks went by, you know, I think it's okay to, 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 to wallow in some of those situations uh, in any struggle you go through in life. But um, at some point, you, you definitely have to move on. It takes a while to do that, particularly. And I know for my situation, as I was learning my about my injury, and it's been 11 years, and part of me still wallows in some of the things that I can't do anymore because I still do have a lot of, uh, you know, I still live with my injury quite a bit. But But yes. Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer. But yes, there's there's definitely a lot of uh, beating myself up. Can I jump in and 
say something from the sheet that you gave us, uh, Chris, because it, it it goes to exactly the point that you're talking about right now. And and it's interesting because you were 28, and Warwick, when you went through your crucible with the takeover, that's roughly the age you were. And I know you went through some of that self-recrimination stuff as well. But you said something, Chris, that that dovetails off what you just said to us in your sheet that you gave us, which was this. Everyone will encounter a devastating struggle in life. One person's struggle can't be compared to another's. But whatever you encounter, you cannot let it define you. You can't dwell. Find the fortitude to move on and you will. And I think... I'm hearing you, obviously, your experience and where you are now, what we're going to get into as Warwick asks you more questions here in a bit, is going to show that. And Warwick, listeners already know that's your story as well. You had some struggle uh, at the same age and you were able to move on. So, again, we have this conversation a lot on this show. The, the, the details of your crucible can be different. And, listener, you may not have... Uh, become a quadriplegic in a a, a, a uh, quote-unquote freakish accident. And you certainly may not have lost a multi-billion dollar family media company. But the emotions behind them, as you listen to Chris talk and you've heard Warwick talk, those emotions of, man, I messed up. Man, I should have done that differently. Those emotions are legit. Those emotions are common. And you can get beyond them. These two gentlemen have proven that. Yeah, I mean, Gary, so well said. I mean, it's, as you said, you can't compare crucibles. And it, what I went through, I feel like is nothing compared to what, you know, Chris has gone through and the, the physical, emotional pain. But yet, yeah, I mean, listeners will have gone through all sorts of different crucibles. And it's true. I mean, when I think of my life-altering moment, it was late March 1982 when I launched this $2 billion takeover. Once I pushed that button life was never going to be the same. Uh, it caused a lot of friction within my family saying, why do you need to do that? I was young, idealistic, thought as listeners know, management needed to be changed, brought back to the ideals of the founder. doesn't really matter so much whether that was right or wrong, but it was life-altering and we're fine financially, but, you know, I don't live in Australia anymore. I mean, it's just, my wife's American, which is very public and I mean, still to this day, you know, there are times in which I look back and say, I mean, I had an undergrad degree at Oxford, a Harvard Business School degree. How could I have been so stupid in doing that takeover? I mean, what a moron. I mean, why did I do it? And look, I've had decades to, you know, move on. And I love what I do with crucible leadership, but it's it's easy to be angry at yourself or maybe a little slightly angry at other family members because if the family had been more together, maybe I wouldn't have felt it was necessary, but it's that sense of just trying to force yourself to move on. And, you know, there'll always be days when you reflect and think a bit about the terrible day. And again, I'm not trying to compare because what you went through is far more pain in, in a lot of ways. But yeah, no, I get what you're saying, Gary, and it's it's well said. So talk about you were in the hospital for, uh, I think, a number of months, and that didn't last forever. You know, you're making small progress. So you went through a lot of mini crucibles, a lot of after that big one, a lot of steps. I mean, how did you have the perseverance just to want to not give up? Because it's clear to me you never gave up on life. You never said, I'm not going to just sit here. I'm going to do whatever I can to get maximum recovery, whatever that might mean, right? 
how did you have that kind of determination to just keep trying? I think, well, well, well first off, um, a little bit, I'll give you a very brief spinal cord injury 101, which is when I, when I was hurt, I knew nothing about either. You know, I assume you have a spinal cord injury and that's it. But every, every injury is totally different. Same with a brain injury, same with a stroke. Um, you don't know how much damage has been done to your nervous system. And um, mine was significant, clearly, because, you know, here we, I was several weeks out, out of my injury. And as the months rolled by, I was still a quadriplegic. But I started getting very small bits of movement back um, within the first week or so below where my injury happened. I could start to twitch a couple muscles. I could start to flex. Uh, I remember my very first muscle I could move was my inner thigh, consciously. Um, and that was a huge sign because that meant that, okay, there was some signals that my brain was going that was, you know, think about your spinal cord injury is like a, you know, a bruise on your spinal cord, like a beaver dam or something. And all of a sudden nothing can go through that. Well, something was, there was some signals going through that. Doctors would tell me, my therapists would tell me, we don't know if that's all you're going to get back or if more will come. But the bottom line is you need a lot of time. And um, over the course of, um, I was in my rehabilitation hospital where I was getting daily physical therapy, occupational therapy, even speech therapy, because I had to kind of learn how to breathe again in a lot of ways. Of course, my lungs were paralyzed. I was getting that every single day. And I was getting movement back, little bits of movement back. And after two months, I could actually move my move my foot a little bit. Um, I could move some fingers. That was about it. I started realizing that I had potential. But all of a sudden, in spite of a really fantastic insurance plan through my employer, I was working at a communications company at the time. Insurance was capped. Insurance said, you know, you have been in this rehabilitation hospital for a while. I was there longer than most. Now, now the average stay in a rehabilitation hospital, insurance covered in, in, in the U.S. is about two weeks. And I was there for two months, which was longer than most. But still, insurance basically capped. And we were fighting it all along the way. You know, I think my first denial came within a couple of weeks. They said that, you know, I had plateaued. That's that's the key word when you when you in, in that industry, when you plateau, okay, your your recovery is kind of stopping now. We got to get you home. And then what I found out was a lot of the rehabilitation I was doing was to get me home quicker because they said, okay, you need to get fitted for a power wheelchair. You need to make sure your home is adaptive. You need to make sure that you, your caregivers know how to cath you and feed you and, 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 and arrange your limbs. That became the care, which is very important, but it, it kind of stopped becoming necessarily um, working on you know recovery. Does it almost um, feel like the insurance is more geared for the insurance company to get you a hospital and free a bed for somebody else? Yeah, they wanted you to recover, but does it feel like your insurance company's agenda and your agenda was not totally the same? A little bit. Yeah, because I mean, I think I think insurance companies look at the statistics that I was a C4 spinal cord injury. And after a couple of weeks out of my injury, you know, they say, look, this guy, he's got to he's got to get home. He can't be in rehabilitation forever. Um, healthcare costs are astronomical. So they, they they move people home very quickly. And that's really the way it is for a lot of really serious injuries. It, it so, may be valid and rational from the seat where they sit, you know, with, uh, you know, actuarial tables and all and data and you obviously got to make some decision, but from your perspective, I think you were, you were there eight weeks. You hadn't given up. You were showing signs of improvement. You didn't want to stop. That was the irony. The irony was I was slowly getting to the point where I could have used more of all these tools I saw in the therapy gym. 
that I couldn't use when I first got there because I was nothing but a head on a pillow. And then I started being able to move some things that, okay, now I can maybe participate in more aggressive rehabilitation, but oh, nope, sorry, you know, I had to be discharged. And um, the option was to come back for outpatient therapy a couple times a week, I think for um, about a month, or go to a nursing home. And at that time, you know, I, I we chose a nursing home because I could still get some daily physical therapy, occupational therapy there. It was that was a very difficult decision because nursing homes didn't know how to care for quadriplegic. But my parents, my family, and friends, they were I was very fortunate in that regard. They they were at my side every day to help me through that as I, as I discharged to a nursing home. And I was at the nursing home for about another four months. And they were willing to help you, work with you, learn what they needed to learn and and it felt like you made more progress over those months in the nursing home. May not have been ideal, but you made more progress. I did. I made some more progress um, because you know more time had passed, and I was still getting daily therapy. Um, so six months after my injury, I couldn't move my arms at all, but I, I actually could actually I could start to move. I could start to sit up in bed, and I could actually stand. And you're talking about six months after a spinal cord injury. Now, six months seems like an awful long time, and it was when you're rehabbing from that. But in the course of a spinal cord injury, after being paralyzed from the neck down, after six months being able to, to actually take a couple steps, those were huge. It must have felt like a miracle. I mean, each step, each finger that being able to move, it must have felt like you'd won the Super Bowl or something. It was a sense if I can't believe it, I did something else today. It was. And and again, so yeah, there, I absolutely celebrated those wins. But at the same time, I was, I knew you never knew if, when it was going to stop. Right. And I, and I was always like, okay, is this it? I was like, so I, I would always also be a little upset because I, I wasn't getting more. Because in my mind, I just wanted to start running again and I wanted to move my arms again and feed myself again. I couldn't do any of those and things. And you never know if tomorrow is going to be when you hit that brick wall in which 40 yeah. years will go by and you'll never be able to move anything more than where you are. Right. That's probably it's just a slow, slow process. And you need so much aggressive rehabilitation for a long time. So how did you move from the nursing home? Because I think at some point you, you went to neuro work. So talk about, you know, what happened after the whole nursing home? You were there for months making some improvement, but that, you know, I guess you felt like there needed to be a change or a change was forced upon you. Yes. Well, I was actually booted out of the nursing home then. I was actually then booted out of the nursing home for insurance too, for the same reason. Right. <laughs> At that point, I was still wheel in a wheelchair, but I had heard shortly after I was injured, I had heard about this place in Salt Lake City, Utah, called NeuroWorks, um, through through a, um, a person I had worked with, and this was a place started by a, a physician named Dr. Dale Hall and a physical therapist named Jan Black. Um, Dr. Hall had the same sort of injury I did and recognized there was a giant need. He worked with his therapist and they started this small little clinic that was aimed toward helping people after insurance was up and a place where you could go long-term. And they created NeuroWorks, you know, this, so I was hurt in 2010. NeuroWorks had already been around for a while. They're still relatively small, but um, that's when I, when I got to the point in the nursing home where I said, okay, maybe I can actually go across the country to this place. Cause I knew I still needed more rehabilitation. You know, I wasn't even close to being done yet. Um, and then we realized, okay, maybe we could do that. So my mother and I, uh, my mother was my caregiver. We, we went, we flew across the country to Salt Lake city, Utah. And there was a small little apartment that had been donated to, to NeuroWorks at the time. And, um, 
my mother and I basically lived there in this little apartment. And we went to, to NeuroWorks every day for Monday through Friday, multiple hours a day for almost two years. That, did, did insurance cover that or? No, they were, it was, that was the beauty of what NeuroWorks was, was that they, you know, if you want to do, uh, if your insurance is up and you want to self-pay for a physical therapy visit, it usually costs three or $400 for an hour. Oh my gosh. You know, that's not affordable when you need hours a day for a year. No. Two years. No. But NeuroWorks would make it more affordable and then they would fundraise to offset those costs. So um, my family did do a lot of fundraising to get out there. And um, we were definitely blessed by, at the time I was working for a company um, called Cha-Cha, which was started by um, a man named Scott A. Jones, who's a, he's an entrepreneurial of voicemail fame that had, had a lot of startup companies. And um, uh, he, a very generous man that actually helped pay for me to get out there. Wow. Um, and my family did some fundraising too. But over the course of a, a year and a half, we basically, you know, self-paid out of pocket, but at a very cheap rate. It wasn't like... I mean, the fact, I mean, what would life have been like if there was no NeuroWorks that had both the technology, the training, and it was a, at least somewhat affordable? Your life would have been radically different, right? It absolutely would have changed my life. Well, so I, I, first thing, it wasn't, it wasn't the more rehabilitation that cured my spinal cord injury. But it was um, the fact that there, it turned out there was less damage to my spinal cord, but also it still took that access um, for a long time and, and, the, and, and the care I received there. I, the first time I walked into um, NeuroWorks at the time, I, the first time I'd ever seen this bodyweight support treadmill system and electrical stimulation machines, they had a pool therapy. Wow. They had these different resources that a lot of um, wasn't available for in, in a lot of other clinics because... They realize that they're expensive. Sometimes it takes multiple clinicians to use them properly, which is more money for the hospital systems. And to benefit, you need to be doing them for a long time. And, and when insurance only covers a certain amount of time, they say, okay, you're not going to be able to have time to do this. Let's not even offer it. Um, and the care becomes what insurance will allow rather than what the patient needs. And NeuroWorks saw this. I saw this. And over the course of two years, um, every single day, hours a day, relearning to, to walk, relearning to move my hands, you know, over the course of that time, I slowly but surely got to the where I am now. And I, I'm ambulatory now. I can walk. I still have some paralysis on my left side. Um, but uh, after two years in the spring of 2012, I actually um, drove myself all the way back home from Salt Lake City to Indianapolis. And I had sort of you know, quote unquote, beat paralysis in, in, in a way, you know, I, I, I had regained bowel and bladder function, I, I was, I was walking again. And I, if you would have told me that two years ago, when I when, when the whole dream was, am I ever going to move again? And all of a sudden, here I was walking again. It was very, uh, it, it was very surreal it took place over the course of two years, but it was still very, you know, surreal, leaving Salt Lake City after two years. So that experience really changed your life. It's patient focused, they have the technology, the training, I mean, I, your sense of hope, which, I mean, somehow through this whole journey, even in those darkest days, it, it felt like, you know, we unfortunately talk about this, you can wallow and say, I'm angry, I'm bitter, and I'm just going to sit here for the next 40, 50 years, whether you're paralyzed or emotionally paralyzed or, you know, just feeling 
down about yourself. Maybe you're a victim of abuse. There's a lot of reasons objectively, you know, it could be valid to wallow, but you never were like that. You just kept pushing. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing once that you're at NeuroWorks, your sense of optimism and hope, it's like, this stuff is really working. I've got the training, I've got the support, you know, I'm going to get some level of movement back, some level of my life back. So I want to talk a bit about neuro hope, but you know, not everybody has this sense of determination and hope. Where did that come from? I mean, is it family or what? Maybe within you, I mean, over all these years, you kept pushing and trying. You never gave up. Where did that come from? That's a good, that's a hard question to answer, I guess. I mean, I think, uh, you know, what I experienced there, what I experienced just, you know, through my process through the healthcare system and, and through how fortunate I was to to actually beat paralysis when so many others can't. Um, sometimes it's because their injury is more severe. Sometimes it's because they may not have the access. Um, it just really inspired me so much. And, and my family too, my whole family involved. These injuries affect entire families. And collectively, you know, it just came to the point where when, when your life's at stake is the way I felt, I'm going to do anything I possibly can to try to get it back. And that's what I would constantly be reminding myself of, even in the early days when I, I would, I would lay at night focusing on some movement. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep moving this foot. I'm going to keep moving this foot. I'm going to try to keep moving this arm, moving this arm. I became borderline obsessed with, with um, the physiology of the injury and, and my chances of recovery. <laughs> you know, I almost wonder as I'm listening to you, your mindset, your whole life has been, you know, be active, go for it, um, don't sit still. Maybe that served you well in some ways because you weren't somebody to sit there and do nothing. So if you're in rehab, you're going to be going for it. You're going to be as active as you can. It, does that make sense? Like you have this never sit still mindset and maybe in some ways that served you. I'm not going to just sit here. If I'm going to twitch a muscle as much as I can and twitch the next muscle and may not be much, but I don't know. I wonder whether your inherent active mindset helped you out there in some ways. I think it certainly did. And we see the same thing with, with a lot of clients and patients that come that I rehab with. And, and I mean, you know, you really have to, it's, it's not, you can't just, it's not up to the therapists. You know, you have to have it in yourself as well to push yourself. You've got to, you've got to make a decision that, you know, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to do my level best to recover. I'm not going to be angry at myself. You obviously had to this sounds a bit ridiculous, but you had to forgive yourself, even though objectively people say, what's there to forgive? He was young. People do that all the time. But still, you were clearly angry at yourself, which objectively doesn't feel that valid, but you had to do that, right? Because if you were, that bitterness could have held you back in your recovery, right? So you had to let go of the bitterness, I'm guessing, or anger at yourself. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. I, I guess so. I mean, I still... I'm still mad at myself. I still <laughs> now sometimes. Well, there you go. You know, so. <laughs> but I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, there, there are times where I'd be mad at myself and times where I said, okay, I got to swallow hard and, and do you this. You know what this, they say, you know, what, you know, what holds you back doesn't serve you. So, you know, it doesn't serve you, but. I can sense we're going to shift gears and go into the creation of neuro hope. But as we do that as an on-ramp, Chris, I want to uh, refer to a, to a, a little snippet of conversation we had before we pressed record on this conversation when you were talking about your crucibles and you mentioned obviously your accident was a, 
a main crucible, the main crucible, but a secondary one was, okay, now what do I do with my life? And what we've seen, and I think this is going to bear out as you tell the story of NeuroHope, we see this happen a lot. It, it happened for Warwick, right? The idea that your crucible can give birth to your, your uh, life of significance, can give birth to what you do out of that crucible, right? Warwick goes through this uh, failure that consumes a continent uh, in that it's all over Australia. And what does he do? He creates a philosophical and practical consultancy that helps people overcome failure and setback. You uh, not only dealt with paralysis, but dealt with uh, some issues around that, like insurance and how do you pay for it and how do you do that? It seems to me it's probably fair to say that out of your crucible, as you figure, what do I do next? Your life of significance, your vision for what was next came in part, in large part because of that crucible. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, obviously the recovering from paralysis and, and what am I going to do as a quadriplegic was one life-changing moment but um even early on i you know i never in a million years would have thought i would have you know created a clinic to help to help people i was just thinking about will i ever walk again now if, if i get my life back in that regard but when i came back home two years after my injury um you know triumphantly defeating paralysis it's like okay well now now what i you know i didn't have uh a, you know a job anymore i didn't have you know, I was living with my sister, and I was still. Most people would consider me disabled, even 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 now. So I can walk. I walk with a, a severe limp. Um, I still don't have use of my left arm. I'm very weak. Um, I can only lift maybe ten pounds. You know, I I've I still have a lot of significant injuries where you know a significance for my injuries. So I still am a disabled person, and you never think that that's ever going to happen to you. So now I, I here I was back home again. Well, it's like, okay, my life for two years was overcoming paralysis. Well, now all of a sudden it's like I was home again. It's like, okay, things are different. Now what? And that's when I think, I guess the second crucible happened because, you know, I really, my whole family and I, we, it was, again, like I mentioned my family because it really was a family affair. We just said, you know, let's try to do what we experienced in NeuroWorks. Why is there not a place like this in our community? Indianapolis is a big city with great healthcare providers, but there's a very real void in care and can we do something to address it? Um, and, and that's sort of where I kind of made a big sacrifice. I was 30 years old and I ended up living with my sister at a time when a lot of people when they're 30 are, are starting to launch a career and have a family and, and do all those things. I started a, a non, non-for-profit, um, not really knowing what, what we were going to do at first. It was going to like, let's try to raise funds for maybe the local rehabilitation hospital. But, um, you know, I, I drew no salary. I lived rent-free with my sister. And I and that's kind of what I did. I, I had a part-time job with, with a company that gave me a little bit of income. But over the course of the next couple of years, we, we created a non-profit. And then really tried to say, okay, well, is this possible? Can we, can we actually create a, 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 some sort of a clinic? And the University of Indianapolis was the first group that really saw the vision. You know, I think early on, I thought maybe we could partner with them in some way. And then the major turning point was I met a physical therapist. 
um, by the name of Nora Foster, who had come from the spinal cord world um, at a rehabilitation hospital. And um, I, met, I met her and she, she, from her perspective, from a clinician's perspective said, um, yeah, there's a big void in here. We gotta create something. And then when I met her and we sort of started launching, I had already created the nonprofit. I already raised the same significant amount of money and but didn't know what we, what we were gonna do with it. That's when we realized, okay, let's kind of do this on our own. And then let's, and we started in a very small, tiny room that was given to us rent free from the University of Indianapolis. Um, we had nothing but a therapy mat um, and, and her, Nora saw some of her first patients that she had, had, had been discharged. And at that point, you know, we did, you know, we're going to charge very affordable rates. And, and that, that was the point, the continuum of care for people. We had no spinal cord injury, th- you know, equipment. We needed some. And I kind of tell the story where I, I got in my car and I drove all the way to a head, headquarters of a place called New Step, where they make recumbent stepping machines for people with disabilities. And I kind of told the story and appeased to them and got a, got a New Step donated to us. And then I drove to Minnesota to try to get a, a standing frame for people paralysis to get donated to us. And, and that worked as well. So then all of a sudden we had a couple, two pieces of a rehab center in this little tiny room. Um, and th- this was back in 2015. And we, we started, you know, the, the, the reality of a, a center, a sem- some semblance of a little bit of a center um, um, began. I mean, it, to me, it's just incredible because as you're driving back from Utah, you could have said, okay, I'm still disabled, but I'm a lot more functional. Maybe I could do TV reporting, print journalism, certainly. I would have thought you might be able to do or some kind of communications field. I can go back to maybe not my total old life, but parts of it. You could have gone that track, you know, some kind of communications. But, you know, maybe it's obvious. I don't know. But what led you to say, okay, that was my old life, but I don't know that I want to go back to it. I want to use what I've been through to help others. I mean, maybe it sounds obvious to people in hindsight, but life is never that obvious. Why did you choose this track rather than some other track? This is a good, it's a good question. And I, you know, I started getting involved in some volunteer work when I was in my early twenties. And uh, one of them was in your area of the world in Australia. Oh, okay. I still consider it one of the best experiences of my life. I'm um, surely, and I'll, 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 I'll be quick yeah, on no, this. It's all good. So shortly after I graduated college, I, I, um, Kind of going back to what I said earlier, I was always on the go. I always wanted to do things and and, and see, experience things in life. And I, I was with a group of students, um, total strangers, but we lived basically in the bush in New South Wales, mm-hmm. n- near a town called Bermagui. And um, there was this wildlife center there that, or a, it was the very beginning of this conservation camp. So we basically lived with no power, no running water, but we were starting to build this student conservation camp, which now, you know, this was in 2004. Years later, it's it's a it's 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 kind of been created, but that was the one of the first experiences that I had really started to do something that was bigger than myself, and um, been involved in something for a community and doing something that just felt more meaningful. And then a year after that, I was living in Portland, Maine, as a, I was working as a lobster fisherman in Portland, Maine, and Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, and it was sort of the same thing where. I actually enrolled a bunch of red uh, classes with the American Red Cross, and I, I actually went down to New Orleans in the middle of after Hurricane Katrina for for a month and helped with some water distribution routes there. And I just it just it 
became kind of, I don't know, I, I, it was something where I think maybe back then, the years before my injury, I always sort of started realizing like, you know, doing something more meaningful. And then, you know, fast forward to my injury and what I went through, then all of a sudden it was a cause that hit me personally. And I just had the whole, to use another journalism term, the fire in the belly to do something. <laughs> um, then all of a sudden, you know, and my, my family was the same way. And um, my sister had run nonprofits before in the past. She, she remains a big part of NeuroHope. And then together we just said, yeah, you know, we have to do this. You know, we, we have to do this for the community. And that's, so, so hmm. I, I think that's always sort of, been in me too a little bit to do something bigger than myself and all of a sudden this gave me a vehicle to to try to do that but if i had if i had the right backing and support and and sacrifice and initiative to do it all you know one of the things we find on crucible leadership a lot and in, in my own life i find this you know the crucibles that you go through they're never fun what you went through was excruciating physically emotionally mentally soul destroying or something could have been but yet somehow when you use what you've been through to help others, it doesn't make it all better, but it gives, I know that you've obviously heard this a million times, you know, pain for a purpose. The pain never goes away. You've got life altering uh, injuries, which will never totally go away. But yet when you make meaning out of it, somehow in some small way, it makes it life a little bit easier, a little bit purpose. Does that make any kind of sense? I know you've you know, this is not an original thought, but by making meaning of what you went through, does was that also a step in your at least emotional, spiritual recovery, if you will? Uh, yes, you know, it, it gives it gives you perspective on life that you wouldn't have that you know I wouldn't have ever had had I not gone through what I went through. Whether that's a you know a, a, a appreciation for things, I mean, I, I was always you know appreciative. I don't want to make it sound like I wasn't. <laughs> but it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you, you, you put struggles into perspective. You, you put things that things, things that have value in life into perspective, whatever your crucible is kind of what you mentioned earlier, Gary, whether it, you know, it's a divorce that may shake you to your core or whether it's the death of someone, a loved one that may shake you to your core, whether it's losing your business, you know, you go through those trials in life. And when you come out on the other side, you never would have had that perspective of how your life can move forward if they never would have happened. That sound you just heard, listeners, is the captain turning on the fasten seatbelt sign indicating it's getting close to the time to land the plane. Before we do that, however, I would be remiss, Chris, if I did not give you the opportunity to let listeners know how they can find out more about you and about NeuroHope. Yes. Yeah, so so NeuroHope, you can really or you can Google us, NeuroHope, N-E-U-R-O, NeuroHope. Um, plenty will come up, but our website is neurohopewellness.org. Um, we're also on Instagram at NeuroHope. We have a lot of inspiring patient stories there. You know, I, I, I talked about how in the beginning, you know, we were a small clinic, but um, now we, you know, we have, I have a staff of nine and we're a little, we're a hybrid, we're a mixture where we, we do physical therapy. We also do wellness and um, we have, uh, you know, an amazing group of staff and we're helping a lot of people not only in the rehabilitation part but in wellness and fitness um, for people that are recovering from injuries and that live with paralysis. Warwick, I'll let you get the last question, but I want to ask one question off of Chris's forum that he gave us because it's interesting. And I can tell you're an old journalist, Chris, because you uh, there's a question that we have on here. If we could only ask you what question, what would you want it to be? 
And you had a great question here, and I'd love to hear, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear the answer. What are you most grateful for in the journey that we've just talked about? Um, I actually just answered it. <laughs> Fantastic. I, it, was, it was the perspective. It was having. It was. The, it was the perspective that that the that my life and injury has 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 made me aware of because I wouldn't have had it before. And I still, like I said, I still mourn parts of my old life. I, I wish I could play the drums again. I wish I could get on some water skis and snow skis again. I wish I could run again and, and play basketball again. I can't do any of those things, but. But the perspective on life that I have now prior to my injury is something that I never would have had, you know, if I didn't go through what I've been through. Well, well, Chris, thank you so much for being here. Your story is inspiring. I mean, you've got the inspiration that others who have been injured physically that, you know, never giving up, you know, you never know where your plateau is. It could be where people think it is, or it could be beyond until you try, you never know. So there's the whole physical side, but there's the emotional and spiritual comeback of realizing your life from a career perspective or in general wasn't over. You used your pain to help others uh, get the benefit of what you went through. And I think what listeners hopefully appreciate is pretty sure that your life, despite the physical challenges, has joy in it. When you get to work with patients, and you get to see maybe that one twitch of a finger or a thigh muscle, and they have hope, and they're getting better day by day, that's got to fill you with, you know, I'm making a difference in people's lives. I'm giving them opportunities they might not have had otherwise. And so when you spend your life for a cause you believe in in service of others, I mean, that does add joy to your life. I mean, is that a fair summary of how you feel and your experience with NeuroHope and what you do now? Yes. You know, I see a lot of people that have had journeys similar to mine that our team works with every day. And our, our team is un unbelievable. The, the, the therapists and the trainers we have, it's, it's you, you watch how they work with patients and uh, day in and day out and how much they care and how much, how much they impact our patients' lives. You know, it's remarkable. Uh, and it, it's definitely one of those things sometimes where you kind of sit back and realize, you know, what what NeuroHope has has grown thanks to, thanks to the staff and, the, and then the group that we've we've gone around, the lives they've changed. It's something that is, is pretty remarkable. And also remarkable is the perfect landing of the plane that that comment brought us to, Chris. Thank you for that. Before we go, though, listener, there are three, I think, takeaways uh, from today's conversation with Chris Liu that I think we can all uh, think about as we move on. Number one, engage your tribe. Chris hadn't even given the details of his own life-changing crucible in this discussion, before he mentioned what a help his family has always been to him, pre-crucible and post-crucible, and he talked about it several times throughout this discussion. When setbacks and failures strike, lean into those close to you, friends and family, for comfort, pep talks, logistical, and motivational assistance. It worked for Warwick in his case. It worked for Chris in his story that he just told and pretty much every guest we've had on the show. The second point, and I'm going to, I've written this second point out with each word has a period after it. So I slow it down when I say it, because Chris made this point in his sheet that he gave to us. He also made it in our conversation. And that point is this, do not let your 
crucible define you? There's a season to dwell on your setback or failure, for sure. But don't let it become nuclear winter. Don't let it go on forever and be bleak forever. As Chris counsels, find the fortitude to move on, and you will. Give yourself time to heal and mourn if you need it. But also be sure to find some reasons to hope, because we can guarantee you're going to need that hope to move on beyond your crucible. And the third point would be this. Your vision for a life of significance after a crucible could very well be grown out of your crucible itself. From the perspective, as Chris pointed out, that his crucible gave him came this life of significance of neurohope. We've seen this happen over and over again in the guests that we've talked to. In Warwick's own story, we've seen that happen. The same thing happened to Chris. He worked hard to come back from paralysis, and now he advocates to help others come back from paralysis and raise money to help them do so. That is the very definition of a life of significance. And speaking of a life of significance, listeners, uh, thank you for spending time with us. And we would ask that you remember that we understand, as you understand, that your crucible experiences are difficult. They are painful. They are traumatic. They can, as we say, and as Chris says, change the trajectory of your lives. But here is the fantastic news. They are not the end of your story. They were not the end of Chris Liu's story. They're not the end of Warwick Fairfax's story. They're not the end of your story. They can be, if you learn the lessons of them, if you internalize the perspective of them, they can be not the end of your story, but the beginning of a new chapter in your story that leads to the most rewarding conclusion you can possibly imagine. And that is a life of significance.